This is Only a Game. I'm Karen Given. In the late fall of 2017, Colin Kaepernick was still in his first year as an NFL free agent. Every day, it seemed, we'd hear speculation on which NFL team would sign him and when. And the rhetoric around the quarterback's decision to kneel during the national anthem to protest police brutality and racism reminded reporter Shira Springer and I of a similar controversy, now 50 years ago. It became one of only a game's most memorable stories. They met in secret, away from their white coaches and teammates. We used to meet at midnight. We could have met earlier. We used to meet at midnight to lay out our thoughts and plans, just like the slaves. Dana Harrell was one of nine college football players the international media would incorrectly call the Syracuse Eight. It was the late 1960s, after the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X, and Bobby Kennedy. That's only a game's Shira Springer. Dana and his black teammates didn't just see racial injustice, they lived it, and they wanted to do something about it. The Syracuse Eight held some of their secret meetings on campus, but whenever they were hungry, they went to Ben's Kitchen. They were all working-class kids from inner cities, and they talked about their plans over plates of barbecue chicken, collard greens, and cornbread among the prostitutes and hustlers and the nightly craps game. For the people of color in the city, that was the place, that was the joint. That's Abdullah Alif Muhammad. Back then, he was known as Al Newton. When all the other places closed, that's the place where you would go to get something to eat. And trust me, there were no, <laughs> no spies or infiltrators there. At the time, Syracuse was a nationally prominent football program. Dana and his teammates had inherited the proud legacy of Jim Brown, one of the greatest football players of all time, and Ernie Davis. Ernie Davis of Syracuse. In 1961, Davis became the first African-American to win the Heisman Trophy. The 21-year-old whiz kid is as hard to stop as a 10-ton truck. Watch that number, 44. Throughout the 1960s, Syracuse rode a wave of success, appearing in bowl games and filling the rosters of NFL teams. But the Syracuse 8 were considering something that would put their NFL careers in jeopardy, a boycott. And let's be clear about this. They all wanted to play. None of them had signed their letters of intent to Syracuse, expecting to sit out. But there was a lot about their Syracuse experience they didn't expect. It was a short ride from the airport to the university, but that's all it took to educate running back Greg Allen about the realities of being a black football player at Syracuse. Greg was driven to campus by the coach who recruited him. We get in the car and uh, we begin, you know, the small talk. You know, Greg, gee, I'm glad you're here. We want you to to have a, a good time while you're at Syracuse. We want you to get a good education. We want you to grow. We want you to have a great career as a football player. Uh, But the one thing we're going to ask you to do is not date any white girls while you're here. It was a little little bit of a a, a shock for me because uh, I knew that I had traveled north of the Mason-Dixon line, not below it. And there was more. Alif was a proud alum of Ringe Technical School with a near-perfect math SAT score. He wanted to be an engineer, but... They wouldn't allow me to uh, take a calculus course, a math course, because it was during football practice. And the only option was to take a, a calculus honors class. And the assumption was, oh, you're a football player. You know, what are you doing over here? And, and I felt kind of insulted. And it was kind of like, you know, they wanted me to take, like, general reading classes and general education classes. And, and it was like, wait a minute. No, 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 no. 
I didn't come here for that. Greg Allen was told he couldn't be a biology major because he wouldn't have time for labs. But he says that policy didn't apply to white players. So the Syracuse 8 drafted a petition asking the administration to give black and white players the same access to tutors and academic advisors. But most of the requests the group hashed out at Ben's Kitchen would benefit both the black and white players. Take the team doctor. Our medical doctor for our football team was a gynecologist by training. Alif says the recommendation for every injury was ice and rest. More than that, Greg says the doctor was hesitant to touch black bodies. You know, there were two sets of latex gloves, and uh, anything that could be avoided was avoided. So, yeah, it's just you're at a major university, and at the time, one of the best football programs in the country, and you don't think enough of your players to get them expert medical care. The next item on the list had to do with playing time. The big Southern schools still weren't integrated. They wouldn't play against teams with black players. And Dana Harrell says north of the Cotton Curtain, schools followed unofficial rules about how many black players could be on the field at the same time, even at home games. You could have three outstanding halfbacks, but you wouldn't play them all together because you didn't want the big money boosters. That's what I call them. The big money boosters to accuse the program of going black. It's, it's, uh, I'll be playing, it's dehumanizing. Uh, My talents, uh, my own personal desires and wishes and goals and dreams take a back seat to this thing called race or racism. The players felt if the team had a black assistant coach, many of these issues would go away. But by the spring of 1970, they'd been asking their coaches to hire a black assistant for a year. It hadn't happened. Meanwhile, Greg Allen attended a meeting where a group of students and university leaders discussed starting a black studies program at Syracuse. A couple days later, he got a call to meet with head football coach Ben Schwartzwalder. Uh, So I walked into the coach's office and I sat down. And uh, he peered at me over his glasses, and he looked at me, and he said, uh, what's this I hear about you and this black crap? Greg started to explain his position, but he says the coach really wasn't listening. So he uh, looked me in the eye, and he said, well, then you have a decision to make. Uh, You can't be black and be a football player. Of course, I was a little taken back. (laughs) I said, well, coach... uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to be black all my life. I'm only going to be a football player for a short period of time, but I don't see how one would interfere with the other. These were the issues Alif and Dana and Greg and the other black players talked about when they met at Ben's Kitchen. By the way, Greg liked it there, too. Great soul food. So, yeah, it was a good place. For Greg and his teammates, Syracuse University was also a good place. There was no sense in transferring. They felt no other school would have been better or worse. So... We decided to stay and fight for the soul of this great university. As spring approached, the players decided to appeal to the coach one more time. If they didn't see substantial efforts to address their grievances, they'd walk out of spring practice. Not a game or an alumni event, nothing that would put the program at risk, just spring practice. When we found out that, you know, the coach really wasn't going to meet our requests, uh, we didn't show up for uh, practice the next day. We knew if we uh, had someone leak it to the press that we would get the attention that we thought we deserved. The players got that attention, but they soon discovered that they weren't in control of the narrative. The media seized on one of their requests in particular. 
that the school hire a black assistant coach. The other demands, the ones that would benefit everyone, they were forgotten. Greg says the papers labeled the Syracuse Eight as black dissidents or black militants or sometimes just the blacks. We were never asked any questions or the media never contacted us to get any of our opinions. No one uh, was really interested in our perspective. The nine members of the Syracuse Eight were suspended from the team, and some of their white teammates threatened to boycott if the black players were allowed back. Soon, Dana says, the chancellor's office was flooded with letters from alumni. We want them off the team. We want their scholarships revoked. Some of them wanted us out of Syracuse University. They called us everything except a child of God, by the way. And they would put under their signature how much they contribute every year. Some of the fans threatened to boycott the games if we were ever allowed to come back. Well, we heard that before. Yeah, he's talking about Colin Kaepernick. And like Colin Kaepernick, the Syracuse 8 had a lot to lose. Each was the first member of his family to go to college, and each was now risking his scholarship to stand up for what he believed in. Once the story hit the papers, Dana Harrell got a call from his father. Well, the conversation went like this. I went on like a 19, 20-year-old young person would do about, you know, because everything's so clear when you're 19 and 20 years old, about what was right and what was wrong and what I felt I had to do. And he let me get it all out. And he said to me, Dana, when you're 40 years old and have a family and a mortgage and things you want to do for them, you're going to need that college degree. Click. The players went home for the summer, not knowing what would come of their protest. Would they be allowed back on the team? Would they lose their scholarships? Over the summer, Jim Brown stepped in to help, acting as an intermediary between the players and Coach Schwartzwalder. It didn't work. But on orders from the chancellor, Schwartzwalder did try to find a black assistant coach. Jake Gaither, the head coach at Florida A&M, told Alif, You guys don't need a coach. You need a Martin Luther King. I mean, who do you think is going to step into that? There was a lot of coaches to turn that job down. They knew the deal, and they didn't want to step into that. When Alif returned to Syracuse in the fall, a black assistant coach had been hired, but... He was not on the program, listed as a coach. I remember going to a meeting, and the coaches were meeting, and the blackboard with X's and O's, and he's sitting in the back of the room with his head down on the desk like he was sleeping. Uh, you talk about something that was... Uh, hurtful. I mean, it was like, wait a minute, I mean, I sacrificed a a career. I felt deeply, deeply hurt. The Syracuse 8 decided to continue their boycott. They sat out the whole season, and the chancellor and a group of faculty members made their own stand. They said, These guys will keep their scholarship. You will not mess with their education. They will graduate. And they did. I turned that type A focus from sports to academics. And it worked. And it worked. But you sit there squirming on Sunday afternoon watching guys you played with and against. And, you know, they're still having fun. And uh, it it takes a while to get it out of your system. Of the nine, eight graduated from Syracuse University. Four went on to earn master's degrees. Dana Harrell went to law school. Another player completed the coursework for a Ph.D., but never finished his dissertation. With the faculty and the chancellor on their side, the Syracuse Eight started seeing changes at the school. But while their academic careers took off, their football careers stalled. 
After his sophomore season, Greg Allen was contacted by scouts from every NFL team. Then came the boycott. Greg played his senior year at Syracuse, but he didn't hear from a single NFL scout. He ended up in Canada, playing for the CFL. And that's when he discovered how far the influence of the NFL reached. One day I was asked to come into the coach's office, and I went to see the coach. And he says, Greg, we're going to have to uh, uh, let you go. And I said, let me go? What are you talking about, coach? I'm doing well here, you know. You said I was the best athlete in camp. He said, yeah, but you have a little bit too much baggage for us. Even in that moment, did you have a twinge of regret? No, it was pure anger. (laughs) I was angry that I had to go through this only because I decided that institutional racism had no place at Syracuse University or any place else in this world. The nine members of the Syracuse 8 moved on with their lives. They raised their families and launched successful careers. Dana Harrell moved to the Boston area, where he coached a Pop Warner football team. Alif Muhammad's youngest son was one of his players. We weren't talking about the Syracuse 8 stuff. It was 36 years ago. Our kids didn't even know anything about it. Nothing. But back in Syracuse, people had started talking about the events of 1970. Alumni and some of the Syracuse 8's white teammates lobbied the university to make a formal apology. And then in 2006, the Syracuse 8 were invited back to receive the Chancellor's Medal, the university's highest honor, and their letterman's jackets, a few sizes larger than they would have been in 1970. They played Louisville, and it was at halftime. They had us come down. They had us in the tunnel, and they wanted us when they called our names for us to run out of the tunnel like, like we did in our playing days. And we looked at them like they were crazy. We don't have two good knees <laughs> between us. <laughs> but the satisfaction was immeasurable. And we're nothing but smiles and old men welling up in tears. I almost don't have the words to, to describe it. It was a, a cleansing, a lifting of this baggage that I have been carrying around for years to have someone finally acknowledge that we uh, didn't do this you know, despite the university or hurt the university. We're trying to make you know, the university and this world just a better place. It took 36 years for the Syracuse 8 to meet again on that football field instead of at Ben's Kitchen. 36 years for Syracuse to apologize and recognize the players were on the right side of history. 36 years. So we asked Dana Harrell, how long before Colin Kaepernick's critics see him in a different light? Will someone someday ask him to run out on a football field in front of a cheering crowd? I'm going to answer that first with a quote. The moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. Dr. King gave that answer when he was asked, how long did he think it would take for... African-Americans to get full rights here in America. And, you know, he said, how long? Not long, because the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. How How long? Not long. That's my answer. (laughs) 
Reporter Shira Springer joined me in producing that piece. It first aired in November of 2017. The nine members of the Syracuse Eight were Dana Harrell, Greg Allen, Alif Muhammad, John Loban, Ronald Womack, Clarence McGill, Richard Bowles, John Godbolt, and Dwayne Walker. Their stories are told in the book Leveling the Playing Field, the story of the Syracuse Eight. We'll have a link at onlyagame.org. There's one athlete we've covered more than any other here at Only a Game, and his name is Zippy Chippy. Zippy Chippy runs no more, unless he wants to, say when he's at the far end of the corral and somebody shows up at the gate with something good to eat. That's coming up on Only a Game from NPR. Need to escape the news for a moment? Check out Endless Thread, a podcast from WBUR and Reddit. From mysteries to histories to stories that will remind you of our shared humanity. Subscribe to Endless Thread on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. I'm Karen Given. Today we're bringing back some of Only a Game's most requested stories. And this next one is memorable for good reason. Here's Only a Game's Gary Wallach. Conrad Ruland had what people in sports call a motor. I had to put bells on his shoes. That's Mary Ruland, Conrad's mother. I needed to know where that little guy was at all times because he just had so much energy. And if I took him grocery shopping, I had to actually harness him in the cart. One time he got out of the cart and I could not find him. And he was hiding in a freezer case. So I had to be on my game with this one, I'll tell you that. Conrad was on his game, too. By age four, he was pouring his considerable energy into baseball, basketball, soccer, and tennis. When he was 11, he crossed paths with a baseball legend. He um, happened to meet Rod Carew at grade school. Rod Carew, the 1967 Rookie of the Year and All-Star for 18 consecutive seasons. Rod Carew, the 1977 American League MVP and winner of seven batting titles. When they met, Carew was Conrad's favorite professional athlete in any sport. And I remember him getting into the car when I went to pick him up, and he says, Mommy, Mom, Mom, I met Rod Carew today, and you know he was a pro athlete, and you know I want to be a pro athlete. And the whole rest of the day just resonated with him talking about his meeting Rod Carew, and it sure left an impression on young Conrad. Conrad played baseball for a time, but focused on basketball and football in high school. He was one of the top tight ends in the country. He played two years at Notre Dame and two years at Stanford. He was undrafted coming out of college in 2011, but in 2012, he played in 16 regular season games and hauled in 11 passes with the New York Jets. His pro career looked like it was taking off. It was tremendous. That's Rolf Ruland, Conrad's dad. We were so proud of him and we were so happy for him that he had realized his goals and was now in the big time and playing at the highest level. But that didn't last long. Conrad suffered a knee injury in 2013, which kept him on injured reserve and practice squads the next two seasons. He rehabbed diligently, but NFL teams weren't convinced he could still play. Mary Ruland was. He was in the best shape of his life. He wasn't done yet. In the spring of 2016, Conrad was back in California, where he'd often land in between contracts. He had taken business courses and was considering a career in real estate. Conrad was beginning to think about life beyond football. 
One day, as Mary made dinner, Conrad filled out his driver's license renewal form. And he says, Mom, do you think I should be an organ donor? And I said, honey, that's completely your decision. And so he says, Mom, are you one? And I said, yes, I've always been one. And he says, you know what? I'm going to do it. I just remember thinking at that time, gosh, I hope it never comes to something like that. Conrad continued to train at a local gym while waiting for an opportunity with an NFL team. Two days after Thanksgiving, he called home. Conrad said that he had had a headache that developed. Uh, he had lifted some weights a little bit, nothing real strenuous, and then got on the treadmill, and after a minute or so on the treadmill, he felt like a little click in his head, and he felt the pain behind his left eye. As I'm a physician, I have a little better understanding about that. I was just hoping the whole time that wasn't an aneurysm. By the time we got to the hospital, they had already made the diagnosis. It was an aneurysm, and it was a bad one in a bad place. So we knew it was going to be a real tough situation. Conrad was admitted to UCLA Medical Center. Mary stayed with him. The next day, when she was in the hospital cafeteria getting coffee to ease Conrad's persistent headache, she texted him an encouraging message. He texted back, saying, I'm about to kick this thing's butt with the help of God. He had something big in store for me. Moments after sending that text, Conrad told a nurse that his headache had suddenly gotten much worse. And then Conrad's aneurysm burst, and they did the 17-hour uh, surgery to try to save his life. He'd never again regain consciousness. On December 12, 2016, Conrad Ruland was declared brain dead at the age of 29. But um, at least we got the four days before it burst to, uh, to tell him how much we loved him and how proud we were. As the Ruland's terrible drama played out, a more hopeful one was unfolding. Doctors kept Conrad's body on life support, and the call had gone out to the recipients at the top of the organ transplant list. We had gone to San Diego for a doctor's appointment. That's Rod Carew. He had suffered a massive heart attack in 2015. He needed a new heart. And my wife was driving. That would be Rhonda Carew. So um, on the way back, we received a phone call, and she jumped at it and started to talk to someone and did found me a heart. I was shaking so badly, and it was like, OK, here it is. This is it. Here we go. And we had a list of people to either text or call telling them that we were on our way, that we had received the call. And a couple of people texted back and asked the question, do you think it's Conrad Rulin? I didn't know why I was being asked that question. Rhonda knew the name. The Rulins lived nearby, and the Carews knew Conrad was a pro football player. But she was too worried about her husband's health to give that too much thought. Rod's heart transplant was a success. Actually, his transplants were a success. He got a kidney, too. But he and Rhonda wondered from whom the organs had come. Mary Ruland had wanted to know to whom Conrad's organs had gone. She wanted to meet the recipient. Representatives of the Organ Donation Network told her that the protocol was that they'd have to wait at least a year. I said, I don't care. Whoever gets his heart, we would like to meet them. And then the next thing I said was, and whoever gets his heart better deserve it, because it's a good one. Conrad's funeral was held on December 23, 2016. Countless people were coming up to me and saying, Mary, 
do you think it went to Rod Carew? And I, I'm looking at them like they suddenly grew a third eye or something. I'm like, what are you talking about? So, you know, the next day I was at home and I started looking on the internet and I saw the whole uh, story of how it unfolded with Rod Carew. And I got to the part where it says the heart of 29. The heart of 29 is Rod and Rhonda Carew's campaign to raise awareness about heart disease prevention. 29 was Rod's jersey number for his entire major league career. Conrad died at age 29. I'm like, this is not just a coincidence. Meanwhile, the crews discovered that Conrad Ruland had a blood type that was compatible with Rod's. I mean, it was amazing. It all checked out, and the blood typing was the last item. Now we just need a confirmation that we were right. Mary got Rhonda's number from a mutual friend, and against the recommendation of the organ donation agency, she called her. And I think I said something to the effect of, hello, this is Mary Ruland, and I think your husband has my son's heart and left kidney. They talked about blood type and all the amazing factors that helped make the match but they still wanted confirmation. And so I called the donor company and I said, hey, listen, you know, um, it's all over the internet, it's everywhere. I said, we, I need to know, did my son's heart and left kidney go to Rod Carew? And the lady kind of just paused for a, what seemed like an eternity, but it was probably just a second or so. And she said, yes, it did. As far as anyone can tell, this was the first time a pro athlete donated a heart to another pro athlete. The families decided to meet in March of 2017. The Carews drove from their nearby home to the Rulands. Rod was nervous, but that didn't last long. When we pulled up to the house, you know, Mary came out and gave me a big hug and gave Rhonda a big hug. And um, it was a great feeling for me because when Mary leaned over to put her head on my chest, I had to hold it back because I thought I was going to cry at that moment. So I held back and waited until she could hear Conrad's heart. While Conrad had been in a coma after his 17-hour surgery, Mary had spent several days with her ear to his chest, listening to his beating heart. It had been three months since she had done that. I had it memorized. I knew that sound. It was a Ferrari beating in that chest, and that just thrilled me. I was hoping that I would get to hear that heartbeat again. Oh boy, and he's beating. So now we're one, we're brothers, and we're gonna do great work by spreading the words about donors and getting more people to listen to us, and hopefully they do. We call ourselves the Karulans now. <laughs> you know, we've got a uh, picture of Conrad with our family photos. We spend a lot of time with them. And we, of course, we only live 12 miles apart, too, which is wonderful. They can listen to Conrad's heart anytime they choose. That story came from Only a Game's Gary Wallach. It first aired in November of 2017. Among the many people who asked to hear it again was Jamie Aaron, who, not coincidentally, is the journalist who put us in touch with the Karulans in the first place. Jamie and Rod Carew have a new book that came out in May. It's called One Tough Out. We'll have a link at onlyagame.org.
Over only a game's 27 years, there's one athlete we've covered more than any other. There's just something about that name, Zippy Chippy. That's the late Bill Flynn. Back in 1999, Flynn was on the scene for Zippy Chippy's record-setting 86th consecutive race without a win. Well, he jumped right out. He was amongst the contenders, and through most of the race, he was there. Uh, he fell from That the- same week, Only a Game sent a reporter out to meet Zippy, which wasn't an easy feat. Oh, Zippy. Oh. A year later, Zippy was still running, and he was still slow. Time now for our weekly Zippy Chippy update, Charlie. Last week, the Zippy retired from racing in 2004, and in the summer of 2013, Bill Littlefield went in search of Zippy Chippy to offer our apologies and maybe a carrot. Bill found Zippy in Greenfield, New York. Zippy Chippy runs no more, unless he wants to, say when he's at the far end of the corral and somebody shows up at the gate with something good to eat. That somebody is likely to be Joanne Pepper, Zippy Chippy's landlord and his most enthusiastic fan. He is quite famous. He has quite a lot of fans. And actually, every day he's getting new fans. When they hear his story, people just think he's adorable. Zippy Chippy's story is, of course, that he ran in 100 races without winning one. Well, actually, according to Joanne Pepper, he ran in 97 tops. He stopped leaving the starting gate when it opened at Finger Lakes three times in a row, and then you get kicked off the grounds. So he was kind of the Ferdinand the Bull of thoroughbred horse racing. He would rather smell the flowers than participate (laughs) in the competition. I think so, yes. Or he just enjoyed, you know, being gracious and letting everybody else go ahead. Zippy Chippy did manage to finish second eight times. He got a few thirds. His career winnings totaled $30,000. It's a record that makes one wonder why his owner kept bringing Zippy Chippy to the track. Joanne Pepper thinks part of the reason was that Zippy came cheap. He was owned primarily by Felix Monserati, who got Zippy in a trade for a pickup truck and raced him throughout his entire career. (laughs) <laughs> How many times did he find himself thinking, I should have held on to the pickup truck? <laughs> oh, I don't know. A hundred, maybe? <laughs> but um, I think most trainers would think, I don't think this horse really wants to race. And Felix thought Zippy enjoyed losing, so he kept letting him lose. <laughs> Zippy Chippy's current home is at a farm called Old Friends at Cabin Creek, established 10 years ago in Greenfield, New York. A quick run from the track in Saratoga Springs. Well, quick for any horse but Zippy. Anyway, Old Friends, which is supported by donations, a few grants, and fundraisers, some featuring Zippy, is home to 14 retired racehorses, though capacity is supposed to be 12. According to Joanne Pepper, Zippy Chippy is among those okay with sharing space with a pal. His name is Red Down South, and he's 12. The minute they got together... They became best friends, and they have not been separated since. So he's lucky. That's really the truest horse relationship that I've ever seen. Zippy loves Red and respects him, and Red looks out for Zippy. It's beautiful. (laughs) It was raining on the August day when I visited old friends at Cabin Creek. The farm was beautiful anyway. 
It was chilly, too, but the horses didn't seem to mind. I found myself wondering out loud in the presence of Joanne Pepper whether Zippy Chippy, reluctant racehorse, laughing stock, butt of the jokes of a thousand railbirds, had at last found the perfect home. He has. I think Zippy's as happy as he can be. He looks great. He's 22 years old. Um, he's healthy. He's, he gets a lot of carrots, so he's well-fed. and <laughs> I think he's happy. Bill Littlefield, who hosted this program for its first 25 years, visited Zippy Chippy in the summer of 2013. Old Friends is once again open to visitors after having closed temporarily due to COVID-19. We'll have a link on how to visit Zippy Chippy at onlyagame.org. NBA Hall of Famer Charles Barkley was at a charity event in California when he first met a cat litter scientist from Iowa. I was just sitting at the bar and me and your dad were the only two people in there and we just sit down and started talking. That's coming up on Only a Game from NPR. Who doesn't love a good story? On Circle Round, the storytelling podcast from WBUR, we adapt folk tales from around the world as radio plays, featuring beloved stars of the stage and screen, like Seinfeld's Jason Alexander, Hamilton star Philippa Sue, and Emmy, Grammy, and Tony Award winner Billy Porter. Circle Round has been named a top kids podcast by The New York Times, Good Housekeeping, and Time Magazine, and we think you'll love it too. Find Circle Round wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Karen Given. Next week on the show, which is the last week of the show, we're going to bring back some staff picks. But now we have finally worked our way to the most requested story from the Only a Game archives. When the story first aired in December of 2018, we knew it was special. The fact that it went viral was a surprise to us and to NBA Hall of Famer Charles Barkley. I've been in the NBA since 1984. I've never gotten a better response or a more positive response of anything I've done in my life than that story would land. That's Barkley on NBA on ESPN a few days after the story aired. Barkley is an analyst for TNT's Inside the NBA, and he's known for speaking his mind. Listen, come on, man. You know, you can't serve cold nachos. Oh, <laughs> Barkley grew up in a single-parent household in Alabama. When his mom, Charcy, passed away in June 2015, he took it hard. His whole hometown came to the funeral to pay respects. But there was also an unexpected guest. Here's reporter Shirley Wong. Charles Barkley's friends couldn't quite place this mystery guest. He wasn't a basketball player, he wasn't a sports figure, and he wasn't from Barkley's hometown. Here's what I can tell you about him. He wore striped red polo shirts, tucked into khaki shorts, and got really excited about two-for-one deals. He was a commuter. He worked as a cat litter scientist in Muscatine, Iowa. In short, he was everyone's suburban dad. More specifically, he was my dad. You know, it was obviously a very difficult time. That's Charles Barkley. And the next thing I know, he shows up. Everybody's like, who's the Asian dude? Over there. And I just, I, I just started laughing. I said, that's my boy, Lynn. They're like, how do you know him? I said, it's a long story. A long story that started four years ago. He has a big personality. That's my dad, Lin Wong. I actually recorded this interview with him in 2017. He told me he knew about Charles Barkley long before he met him. 
Well, yeah, he's a, you know, top 50 players in, in the history of the NBA. For many years, he was the number two guy, right after Michael Jordan. Whenever we attended dinner parties, my dad would talk about his friend, Charles Barkley. The first time my dad told the story, I didn't pretend to know who this person was. Basketball has never been my thing. Like a good millennial, I googled Charles Barkley. He seemed pretty famous, and definitely not like anyone who would be friends with my dad. About two years ago, I asked my dad if I could see their texts. They were mostly messages from my dad that ended with an excessive number of exclamation points. In one of the texts, in which my dad calls Barkley brother, my dad wrote, Brother, you are so popular, exclamation point, exclamation point. Watching your Capital One commercials in March Madness every year is almost like eating turkeys in Thanksgiving, exclamation point, exclamation point. It has become a must-do thing in March, exclamation point. Good for you, exclamation point, exclamation point. I told my dad the conversation seemed pretty one-sided and handed the phone back. As I talked about the relationship with more and more people, I began to think that either my dad was one of the luckiest basketball fans ever, or this whole thing was an elaborate joke, a dinner for schmucks type situation. But no, the friendship was real. <laughs> it was like one of the most random things. Yeah, I was on business trip and stayed in one of the hotels and was working in the lobby. And I, I saw Charles Barkley. I was in Sacramento speaking at a, uh, a charity event. So I just wanted to say hi. I don't want to take, take a picture with him. I was just sitting at the bar, and me and your dad were the only two people in there. And we just sit down and started talking. <laughs> He's a super nice guy. And before we knew it, we looked at each other like, yo, man, I'm hungry. And we said, well, let's go to dinner. It turned into a two-hour dinner. And then we actually went back to the bar, just sit there and talk for another couple hours, and the rest is history. My dad and Barkley saw each other again in the bar the next night, and the night after that, at the end of the third night. You know, certainly I, I told him I had a good time talking with him, hanging out with him. He, he said the same thing to me, and he left the phone number. He said, whenever you're in Atlanta, New York City, or Phoenix, check out with me. If I'm in town, we'll hang out, have a good time. Over the next few years, whenever my dad was in those cities, he would text Barkley, and they would hang out. I mean, it's just a fun time. I mean, like, when he came to Atlanta and came to the show and things, you know, my friends Shaq, Ernie Kennedy, they enjoyed just meeting him. They got dinner together. I think I had a Thai basil noodle. It was pretty good. I had it right inside the office. Spent time on the set of Inside the NBA. He likes to clean. There's several big can of cleaning webs right on his desk. Every time he sit down, he cleans his desk. Watched basketball games. And Iowa lost into Maryland that day. I'm pretty sure they did some partying too, but that I don't know much about. Your dad is one of the happiest people I've ever met in my life. I mean, I, I mean, I mean, I'm not just saying it. I mean, think about it. It, it was just, it's fun to be with your friends, you mm -hmm. know, because like, uh, you know, like I don't have that many friends that I want to be around. To be honest with you, I mean, you know, you know a lot of people, but when you go spend time with your friends, it's a whole different animal. 
Back home, my dad's co-workers would tease him about Barkley and ask him about the story all the time. My dad didn't mind that they didn't believe him. He even made a slideshow of photos of him and Barkley together for our community's Chinese New Year celebration. Totally irrelevant to the holiday. Why do you think, like, out of all the people that he's interacted with, that you became friends with him? Like, what is, what is it about you and him? that made that last? I think we had a good conversation. We agree with each other a lot of point of views. You know, he grown up in, in the 70s in Alabama. His father left him and his mother when he was little. He grew up with grandma and mother, and grandma and mother cleaned up house for somebody else to make a living. Tough life for him. but. You know, he's well-respected professionally. You know, that's his story. My dad moved to Iowa from China in the 90s. He felt that Barkley and him had similar experiences. So to me, as an as a, as a Asian in the U.S., I felt as long as I do a good job, people will respect me. Barkley and my dad both worked hard. So hard, they believed that the color of their skin didn't matter. In Chinese, we'd say that dad sometimes would hu shu ba dao. That meant that sometimes he was known for spewing rubbish. I know that basketball fans might say Barkley often does the same. Remembering the mother of Charles Barkley. Today, folks in Leeds said goodbye to Charcy Glenn. She died at her home this week. When my dad heard on the news that Barkley's mother had passed away, my dad looked up the funeral details, hopped on a plane to Lids, Alabama. It ain't easy to get to those places. I'm from a very small town. And my dad showed up for his friend. Afterwards, he went to dinner with Barkley and his family. For your dad to take the time to come to the funeral meant a great deal to me. Then, in May 2016, my dad was diagnosed with cancer. He had tumors in his heart. I took that fall off from school. My dad and I watched mobster movies together. Action movies. Kung Fu movies. When the credits rolled, we'd flip to a basketball game. Just me and him, watching a lot of TV in our living room. Days passed by. Whale of a playoff game in Oklahoma City tonight in the Thunder, even the series in the Western Conference semis with San Antonio. Then months. From the set of Saturday Night Live in New York City, it's Inside the NBA. Hello, hello, with Charles Barkley. Then it was two years. And he never told you that he was sick, correct? No, because I called him and got mad at him when I found out. <laughs> uh, I was like, dude, you, this, dude, we're friends. You can tell me you're not bothering me. You know me well enough, but you were bothering me. I would tell you you were bothering me. What Barkley didn't know was that my dad watched him almost every night on TNT. And while he rested and healed, my dad was laughing along with Barkley. He kept my dad company. I think the Cavs bench is underrated. June 2018, NBA Finals. Golden State Warriors versus Cleveland Cavaliers. My dad was staying in palliative care at the hospital. He loved the Warriors. I visited and read him sports highlights. He didn't get to watch J.R. Smith's late mistake in Game 1 live when Smith forgot the score. I tried to get him to laugh about Smith dribbling away from the hoop because he thought his team was ahead. But it was a Sunday afternoon, and my dad was tired. 
The summer light filled his room, then the day faded, and dusk began to enter. After it was all over, I went through my dad's phone and texted all his friends. I wrote, hi, this is Shirley. My dad just passed away. The funeral was the day after the NBA Finals. My dad's favorite team, the Golden State Warriors, had won the night before. The funeral was set near the outskirts of Iowa City in a house by the woods. I was talking to my childhood friend when she suddenly looked stunned. I turned to look behind me. And standing there, drenched in sweat from the Iowa summer, towering over everyone in the room at six feet six inches tall, was Charles Barkley. I had not met anybody in your family. I didn't know anybody there. (laughs) But we all knew you. Everyone watched astonished as this man, this man we only knew from TV, this worldwide celebrity, walked down the aisle, looked at us, and sighed. Later, after it all, I texted Barkley and asked him, why my dad? Why did he matter so much to you? And recently, I called him up and asked, what did you even have to talk about? Well, I think, well, first of all, clearly he's a, he, he was a fan. Right. Big time. Uh, but I think the main thing we talked about was you and your brother. Um, what did you guys talk about? What did he say? In, um... Well, I think it was more that he was proud. And we, because I got a daughter too. I'm just really, really proud of her because I think she's a good person. And your dad was so proud of you and your brother. And we just talked about, because listen, as an adult, and you too young to understand this now, and all you want is your kids to be happy. That's what you work for, to give your kids everything in life. The more Charles Barkley and I talked, I realized just how close he and my dad were. Barkley knew so much about me and my life, even though this is the first time he and I had ever talked. It gives me great memories and great joy to know that uh, that I was a friend of his, just hearing about him at the funeral, what he had accomplished uh, and what he was trying to help other people accomplish just made me even, I I wish he bragged more about, I wish he bragged more about himself. So let me get this straight. You were impressed by him. Uh, Yeah. At the funeral, people shared memories of my dad and made me realize that, for example, He was not just a cat litter chemist, but an industry-changing scientist with a PhD, and not just an immigrant, but someone who reached out to Chinese newcomers, and not just a thoughtful guy, but someone people trusted for advice. I realized that even after he passed away, I would continue to learn things about my dad. Hey, listen, you stay in touch. Please tell your mom I said hello, give her a big kiss. Tell your brother I said hello. And listen, just keep doing you. It's your time now. Don't forget that. Yeah. That's the most important thing. Your dad prepared you to take care of yourself. Yeah. He prepared you for that. Right. I was blessed to know him and, and know you too. Thank you for your time. You're welcome, baby. You take it easy here. You too. Okay, bye-bye. I know how much his friendship with Charles Barkley meant to my dad. 
It was not just a relationship with a celebrity. It shed light on the possibilities of this world. A world where someone like him could just say something cool, something charming, and befriend someone like Charles Barkley. I'm so glad that now I get to share my dad's number one dinner party story. That's reporter Shirley Wong with a story that first aired in December of 2018. Only a Game was produced this week by technical director Marquise Neal, who tweets at OneQuizzington, and me. You can follow the former Only a Game staff on Twitter. Jonathan Chang is at Jonathan Y. Chang. Martin Kessler is at Martin Kessler 91 And Gary Wallach is at Only a Gary. I'm Karen Given on Twitter at KL Given. Only a Game returns next week. Thanks for listening. <laughs>